Well, good morning. I'm really, I'm really glad they got me a Bible because I needed something to preach from this morning. So <clears throat> if you have your copy of Scripture, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 9, we're continuing on in our study uh, of the gospel as we transition from Christmas to Easter and we look at, um, at, at Jesus in this context. We've been talking about um, the words of God and what he said to uh, the followers that he had and those that he was coming in contact with. Um, in June of 2019, there was a, um, a little old lady in France that was um, getting ready to sell her house. And as she was preparing for this transition, she called an estate agent in to, to have them see if there was anything of worth in her house that she could auction off. And when this agent came in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as this agent came in, he noticed a, a small painting over the hot plate in her kitchen. I think we have, we have a picture of it here. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not very impressive to me, at least I don't know if you can see it. Um, but she not he noticed it there and he thought it looked kind of early and kind of old and he thought this may be worth something. Um, <clears throat> so he suggested that they send it off to have it looked at by an appraiser um, and they sent it off and um, this appraiser came back and it turns out that this was a very early painting from about 1280 um, by one of the early Italian great masters named Cimabue. And it was valued somewhere in the neighborhood of $19 million. Um, and it did actually auction for $19.5 million for this painting that had just been passed down in their family um, for years and years. And it had been hanging above her hot plate. She, she had no, I mean, I just, I have this picture in my mind of like, she's making tea and she splashes some on the painting and like, oh man. But knowing, thanks Rich, knowing uh, the value of what we have is, is hard sometimes. Sometimes we have stuff that we don't even realize um, that is of great value um, until something like this happens. Uh, this painting is called Jesus Mocked, and Reggie told me this week he, he did not like this painting when he studied it in the past. Because if you look at it, it's like they're like beating up Jesus. I mean, that's Jesus in the middle there, and they're like beating him up and stuff. And, and then he realized that like this is really me over here, you know, like mocking Jesus as well, you know. So um, value is something that we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to get back into the story of Jesus as he travels um, to the cross. Just to catch you up where we are, we have been watching Jesus as he steps into ministry. Uh, we have seen him perform a number of miracles that only Jesus could do. Um, we, we haven't talked about, but we have seen in chapters prior to this that Jesus has um, raised the dead. He has cast out demons. He has calmed the storms. He has healed numerous people. Um, all of these things that, that only God could do through him. And so we've, we've established this pattern that Jesus has power. We've established that he knows the truth and he teaches it well when he goes to the temple and people uh, and has these conversations with people. So where do we, we jump in here? At the end of this last passage before we get in verse 18, Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000. So there was a group of people on a hill. They were hungry. Jesus had some loaves and he fishes and he multiplied it and all 5,000 had eaten, and he's gathering after this with his disciples. So look at, look at verse 18. It says, 
Uh, while he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. This is a huge change in the story of the disciples and the, and the ministry of Jesus because up until this point, we have seen them even call him Lord. We've seen them call him teacher, rabbi, all of these things. But this is the first time that we see that Jesus has, is recognized by his disciples as Messiah. And what does Messiah actually mean? If we look at that, um, it literally means the Christ or the anointed one. So the Messiah is the one who carries the anointing of being the savior of Israel. Um, in the Old Testament, the kings would be anointed by a priest and that was showing that they had this authority that had come from God down through the priest to the king and they had the authority to rule over the people of Israel. Peter takes this kind of another step further. He doesn't just say, you are an anointed one. He says you are God's Messiah, which is a, it's a difference here. It's not just there's an Old Testament priest. It was not the high priest that was anointing. This was the anointing of God upon Jesus to be the Messiah. It's a big shift here. Don't miss the fact that this is a transition in how Jesus is seen among his disciples. It was a big deal for Peter. This was a really big deal because Peter is is acknowledging something that had been long awaited for. This was not something that they would just throw out randomly. They were not saying every other, every other guy was the Messiah because the, the Messiah had a series of expectations that came along with the Messiah. So they hadn't heard from a, a prophetic word from the Lord in 400 years since the end of the Old Testament. And they had been waiting for this Messiah over and over again, just waiting for him to come and what were they expecting? If you, look at, if you look back at Isaiah chapter 35, there's this beautiful passage about um, the Messiah, and it says this, strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees, say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. That was the Messiah they were waiting for. If you look at Daniel in chapter two, it says, in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. That was what they were expecting. They were expecting this Messiah to come and free the people of Israel and rule and bring Israel back to power um, among the nations. It was a huge expectation. But there was another side of that expectation. If you look at Micah chapter four, that says, look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. So there was this expectation that the Messiah was gonna come in power, he was going to set up and establish his kingdom on earth, and he was going to burn the enemies to the ground. This was Israel back in power. This was the Messiah coming on a white horse with a sword, getting ready to bring Israel back to something that they had been waiting for since David and Solomon. 
they were, they were expecting to be the dominant, the dominant kingdom of the time based on the prophecies that they had in, in the Old Testament. So when Peter says, you're the Messiah, this was a huge turning point in the life of Israel. Which makes the next words that Jesus speaks even more confusing. Keep going if you look with me um, in, in chapter, I mean in verse 21, these words especially have to confuse the disciples because he says this, but he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. Now, wait a second. I've been waiting for 400 years for you to show up and all of a sudden you show up and I recognize that you're the Messiah and you tell me don't tell anybody? This makes no sense to me. If I'm Peter, I'm gonna be pretty frustrated. I gotta be honest with you. You know, I've seen you calm the storms. I've seen you heal people. I've seen you cast out demons. And now you're telling me I don't get to go tell anybody that you're the Messiah? Why in the world? Jesus, this doesn't make any sense to me. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me either because it's just like, well, why wouldn't Jesus do that? But if you look at Rome and you look at where Israel was in the world at the time, they were really under the hand of Rome throughout that entire region. And, and Rome was the most dominant country of the time. They were an empire uh, second to none at that time. And they did not handle rebellion um, with kit gloves. Uh, they, when rebellion happened in a Roman colony, it was not a good thing. Uh, just a few years after this, in AD 66, um, the Jews rebelled against Rome, and it did not go well for them. Uh, they, Rome ended up destroying the temple that they had established as their center of worship. Uh, a few years after that, if you look uh, in 73 AD, there was this dude named Spartacus. He was a gladiator. You've probably seen the movie, or maybe your parents have seen the movie, or your grandparents, I don't know. Um, I think they have a show now, but... Um, it, he was a gladiator, and there was this huge gladiator rebellion that came up against Rome, and um, they, they were not successful. In fact, Rome crucified 6,000 people during that rebellion. 6,000 people, just imagine that. Rome, when, when dealing with rebellion, uh, did not handle it very well. In fact, um, some scholars believe that Barabbas that was um, on trial with Jesus was actually called Jesus Bar Abbas, and he was a false messiah that was being awaiting his crucifixion for rebelling against Rome. Uh, so there were a lot of things that were standing in the way of just standing up to Rome. I think Jesus knew that. I don't know that he knew that. I mean, I know he knew that, but I don't know that that was in his mind, but I know that a political rebellion, a military rebellion against Rome was unlikely to work. Um, Jesus, of course, has all power and can make anything happen, can affect any outcome, but Jesus was saying something different here. He was saying something different. He was saying, I wasn't, I'm not coming just to rebel against Rome. I'm coming for something different. Let's read on here. After he warns them in verse 22, he says this, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. That's, again, an, an enormous statement here. Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I know that you want me to step into power now. I know that you want me to... to to rouse the forces together and we're going to go up against Rome. But it's, it's necessary that I am killed, that those in power are against me, and that I come back on the third day. Now, why would Jesus say this was necessary? 
Why would Jesus say it is necessary? That little word there is an important word that I missed the first few times that I was reading through there, but it says it's necessary. Why is it necessary? So play this, play this story out with me, okay? If Jesus um, came in power like the disciples expected him to, what would have happened to the people? What would have happened to the people that he came in contact with? <clears throat> You see, if he came in his righteous holiness, in the justice, and, and in his wrath, everybody would be gone. Everybody would be condemned guilty, right? Even David knew this in Psalm 143. He said that in God's sight, no man living is righteous. So if God came in power and was, was standing there to uphold his holiness in front of all of the people, the only possible outcome here is that they all would perish because no one, no one is good enough for God's standards. No one had done enough things. No one had done enough to satisfy the righteousness of God. Nobody had done that. So the only outcome here, if Jesus had come in that power, was that everybody was going to die. And yet God, in his incredible mercy, saw a different way. He saw another way. He saw another option. And Jesus said, I'm going to go, and I'm going to take that penalty myself. No one is, is, will, no one is able to meet these requirements, but I'm going to go and take the punishment. That's why it was necessary for God to die. That's why it was necessary God's mercy and his grace and who he was made it necessary for him to step in to fill the role that we couldn't fill ourselves. That's really the heart of the gospel. That's, that's really why we're here. Because if Jesus hadn't come, there's no point in, in us being here at all. It's too hot in here to, to be sitting around if Jesus didn't come, right? It's important. It's important words that Jesus found it necessary to die for me. It's important. We could just stop there. We could go home. And if you heard nothing else, just hear this. Jesus came to die for you and for me because we were not worthy. And when faced with the wrath of God, the justice, the merciness, I mean, the, the holiness of God, there's no other option than, than we're going we're gonna to burn. We're going to perish. So after this, he opens it up a little bit in other passages. It talks about how he opens it up and more people are listening now. And so in verse 23, he says, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So when I got this um, passage here and we were talking about when I would preach, I was not happy about it, you know? Because it's like, so you're telling me on the first day of spring break when the time change happens and it's gonna be cold outside, you want me to get up and tell people that they have to be willing to die? Are you kidding me? Why can't I get something easy? Can you give me like, let the little children come to me or like, I don't know, one, you know, something that was like a little, just easier, right? Because this is hard. Nobody wants to hear that if you wanna follow Jesus, you gotta be willing to die, right? I don't wanna hear that. No one, you know, you have to, you're telling me I have to tell them they have to deny themselves. I got to get up and tell people they can't eat ice cream. Is that what you're telling me? That's not right. And I, that was how I initially thought about this passage when I read it. And I was like, this, that can't be what Jesus is saying here because, but he says, if you want to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. 
And then I began to think about how the disciples lived at the time prior to Jesus coming. You know that? You thought about how the Old Testament, the people that were leading into the New Testament had to live? Man, talk about a burden. There were 613 laws in the Old Testament you had to follow to a T. You know, um, you had to go, you didn't get to go talk to God directly. You had to go to your high priest and you had to offer a sacrifice and it was a whole thing and like you'd have a lamb or doves. And I mean, it was like, it was not an easy thing to do. You know, if you were Jewish at the time, the, this system of laws and regulations was, was massive. It wasn't just like, just go on Sunday morning and you're good. You know, make sure you tithe. You know, that's not what it was. This was an entirely different ballgame. Their entire life was lived around what it meant to be Jewish, to be a believer in God. And so everything that they did was, was to, to live to, by the laws that had been set up for them as a people. In addition to that, if you wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi at the time, um, they all the rabbis were super holy. So they all had their own little set of rules and regulations, right? They had them, then they would actually roll them up and they would wear them around their neck and the little like long scroll and they called it a yoke. Um, it, that'll come back later. Um, but they, had a, they called it a yoke. They would wrap it, they would put around this necklace around their neck. And then it, when, they, when you wanted to see what the rabbi believed, he would take his little yoke out and he would, he would like throw it down and it would like, you know, like in the cartoons, he put your scroll out and it goes and then, you know, some of these rabbis had these really long yokes of rules, these, these really long list of rules, and like, I don't eat fish on Thursdays, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. And, and in order to follow the rabbi, you would have to learn his yoke. You'd have, to, you'd have to learn those rules and regulations if you wanted to be a rabbi, a follower of this specific rabbi. So it was not just the rules and regulations that you saw in the Old Testament, but also who you were following, his rules and his regulations if you wanted to be his disciple. It sounds like fun, right? When I came into the church and I was like, okay, Kevin, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to be part of this church. And he was like, okay, well, here's our rule book, Right? I didn't do that, right? Because we don't, we don't do that anymore. Praise the Lord for that. But that is what the disciples had to look forward to. And it was a big deal. Now, it's interesting to note that none of the disciples at the time were noted as followers of famous rabbis. Have you thought about that? None of them stepped in and were like, well, I follow Gamaliel, you know? They were all fishermen, tax collectors, and people from other walks of life. God didn't, had not called together a group of these other disciples of other rabbis. He called people who were like you and me and, you know. And so when Jesus comes in and says, hey, do you want to be my disciple? That's, that's amazing. That's incredible. I'm going to make this really easy. In another passage, there's this beautiful thing that Jesus says, if you're tired, if you're weary, come on, come to me. If you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, if you're overburdened, come on, come to me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So compare that to what the disciples had to live over here with these, all of these rules and my goodness, it was exhausting. And now compare it to what Jesus says. He says very simply, deny yourself. Deny yourself. What does that mean? You know, um, it does not just mean don't eat ice cream. I mean, it, it might mean that for you, but that is not what he's talking about. Um, to deny ourselves, so I asked you a question at the beginning of this. Well, I didn't ask you. The B team asked you. What's the most important thing um, to you? What's the most important thing you own? 
And, and what did you give up for that? What would you be willing to give up for that? You might, you might have denied yourself for that, whatever it is that you have. Uh, Sherry and I have taken to aquariums. We got a couple for Christmas, so we have these saltwater aquariums. It's, it's, it's ridiculous, but it's awesome. Um, but you know what? Like a couple weeks ago, we went to an aquarium show. I know, I know, you can, I know, yeah. <laughs> we, we gave up our Saturday so we could go look at aquarium stuff. I mean, that was denying what, uh, something else so that we could go do something that we valued, right? If Jesus is calling us to deny ourselves, what, what he's asking us, what he's telling us is that we have to make a value decision. Um, am I going to value myself? Am I going to value my own will, my own desires, my own wants? Or am I going to deny those things for God? Am I going to live for myself or am I going to live for Jesus? That's what he's saying. It's a, it's a very easy question. It's not, it's, he's not talking about every day waking up in the morning and saying, I guess I'm eating grape nuts again. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, what do you value and what are you willing to give up for it? That's what he means when he's saying deny yourself. So when he, Jesus says, look, deny yourself and, and value me. Affirm me, not yourself. Don't look to your own wants and desires. Look to what is the best for the kingdom of God. Don't, don't look for what, what's going to profit you, but look what's going to profit God. Look at what you can do for the Lord, not just what you can do for yourself. And the amazing thing is what I have found in my life is as I make that decision to value God and honor God and live for God, that he is gracious in providing me the other things that I need. He has never let me down in that. But denying myself is that. It is saying to, to God, I choose to not value myself more than I value you. And what you value, you will live for. What you choose to establish value in your life is what will determine how you go. I asked a bunch of the kids, what's the most important thing to you? And they were like, oh, it's my game system, you know, or my iPad. It's like... Yeah, you give up a lot of time that you could be doing other things like doing the dishes so that you can, you know, do this. Denying yourself means that. The next part of this is this. He says to take up your cross daily. This is another little snippet here that, that kind of didn't make sense to me at first because if you think about it, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, right? So he's not on the cross yet, and just back here, he didn't say, I'm going to get crucified. He just said, I'm going to have to die. So Jesus then coming here and saying that you have to deny yourself and then take up your cross daily. What does that mean? Um, well, the cross was a well-established means of death um, prior to this. This was not something. So there was a cultural understanding around what it meant to carry your cross um, long before Jesus went to the cross um, because Rome had been crucifying for years. It was not a new thing. Um, and so there was an implication uh, in the culture when you were to pick up your cross, the only people who picked up, picked up crosses were criminals. Uh, you didn't go to the cross because you were, you were living and doing everything right. Um, you would pick up the crossbar and they would force you to carry the top crossbar of the cross on your shoulders up to, up to wherever you were being crucified most of the time. So um, if you saw somebody carrying a cross, what would that tell you? You can, you can totally talk, it's okay. Uh, you're a criminal. Thanks, Reggie. If you saw somebody carrying a cross, you knew that they were a criminal, right? They were guilty. So 
by saying, pick up your cross daily, put it on your shoulder, the first thing that I think of is that it's a constant reminder of, of my guilt, my personal guilt, the sin, the crimes that led me to carrying this cross in the first place. It's a constant reminder every day that like, I am unworthy of this. It's a constant reminder of the pain that Jesus had to face so that I could be set free. It's a constant reminder to, to, to me personally that I have, to, I have to make this decision every day to pick it up in the morning, and I've got to carry it with me. I've got to be this cross-bearer. But it's a lot more than that, because Jesus took this picture of, of torture and death and agony, and he turned it into something completely different. Uh, one of the things that I, I love about, we've been to Europe a few times, and anytime you go in these huge cathedrals in Europe, um, there's always a very prominent cross somewhere. Jesus on the cross. And you know what? One thing I notice is that they're always really beautiful. And it always kind of made me mad. Like, they're gold Jesuses on gold crosses, and they're all beautiful. And it's like, this doesn't make sense because, you know, I've seen the Passion of the Christ. You know, I've watched how Jesus died. I've seen the pain that he went through. I've seen the nails and the, the blood. And I mean, it was an awful, awful way to die. You know, Jesus did not climb up on that cross and just, you know, expire because he felt bad that day. No, it was brutal and awful and terrible. And yet today we make it into some beautiful symbol. But, but the reality now, is, I think about it, is that he has taken something so ugly and painful and deadly and just, just abhorrent and he turned it into a symbol of the ultimate love. He's taken something so painful and bad and flipped it on its head. And he said, it's not, it's not just a symbol of your criminal past. It is a symbol of the amount of love that I'm willing to show you every day. So when I pick up that cross in the morning, when I get up in the morning, I say, I'm going to deny myself today. And I'm going to pick up that cross and I'm going to put it on my shoulder and I'm going to walk around with it all day long. It's not just a symbol of the crimes that, that put Jesus on the cross. It is a symbol and a sign that Jesus was willing to go as far as he could for me. It was a symbol of Jesus saying, I will take the cross on my back for you. And I will proudly pick the cross up and put it on my shoulder every day. Not because of my crimes, but because of Jesus' love for me, that he was willing to do that for me. So unworthy, so unworthy of the sacrifice. Jesus, the son of God, who had the power of creation in his hands, who could calm the waves and cast out demons and heal the lame, was willing to give up his life to be the substitution for me because I couldn't do it for myself. So I will gladly wear that cross on my shoulder every day. Deny yourself, pick up your cross. And lastly, he says this, follow me. Follow me, right? How do you follow something? I'm not talking about Instagram. I mean, do follow the church on Instagram, right? You know, if you don't already. But if you, you know, but that's not what I'm talking about. How do you follow something? I'm going to say Reggie, or not Reggie, Kevin, you're pretty athletic. I'm going to, you're going to go run. I'm sorry. Sorry, Reggie. I love you, man. But I saw you after that 5K the other morning. So, Kevin, uh, if I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to run a 5K and I'm going to follow you. How do I do that? Or Phil, Phil, I could never follow Phil because he would, he would leave me in his dust. How would I follow you? You start running, and then what do I do? 
You just go after him. It's not hard, right? Following is probably the easiest part of this conversation because following is just, just following. You know what I mean? Uh, you, just, you just watch where Jesus is going and you go there. You just know that Jesus is going that direction and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to go wherever he's, wherever he's going. Uh, that's where I want to go, following him. So if you're following Jesus and then you start going like this and then Jesus is like over there, are, am I still following? No, probably not. No. And so it goes right in line with what we've talked about. We're going to deny myself. We're going to say, nope, not my way, God. Not my way, your way. I'm going to follow you. So not my way, not my will, not my wants, not my desires, but yours. That's how we follow Christ. This is something to me that um, a lot of people struggle with. Well, what is the will of God in my life? It is a struggle. It's a, it's a real like thought. What do I, how do I... How do I know the will of God in my life? Well, here you go. Here's the will of God for your life. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It's really easy. Now, compare that to the life that the disciples had to live prior. When Jesus comes and says, okay, if you want to be my disciple, here's what I got to do. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. How freeing must that have been to the disciples? How much grace is that. Jesus could have said, okay, you want to follow me? Here's my list of rules and regulations in order for you to get in heaven. He did not do that. He did not. He gave us three simple rules. Moving on. Look at these next verses. I really wanted to skip them, but I can't, so I'm going to go ahead and read them. It says, for whoever, this is verse 24, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and his holy angels. So first thing I want to tell you is that Jesus clearly, I mean, he had a problem with grammar because this is a really long run-on sentence. Um, if you look at this four, at the beginning of each of these verses, um, these are connecting words, right? So this is like a really long thought that he starts going through. It says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, four, right? So this is connecting these verses all together in one long string. So you can, you can substitute because uh, instead of four, that makes sense as well. So if you want to follow him, um, take up your cross and follow me because whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And then if you keep going, it says, because what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? So going back to this question on your name tag, what is the, what's the most important thing that you have in your life? I mean, I'm not talking spiritual. I mean, this is real talk, right? This is, what is the, that thing that if you lost it, uh, you would be most sad about? Um, for me, it's my cello. It was a gift from a, a gracious friend who is now gone. If I lost it, oh man, it would, it would break me. I mean, it would be so sad. But would I be willing to give up my cello for my kids? Most days, no. Most days. I mean, no, of course I would not, right? Would I be willing to give that cello up for my wife? No, of course not. Would I be willing to give up that cello for my arm? 
Uh, yeah, I, 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 well, I mean, the cello wouldn't do me much good with only one arm, but, you know, would I be willing to give up that cello for, you know, my job? Would I be willing to give up that cello for my health? Would I be willing to give up that cello for anything that I think is important? Would I give it up for a week's vacation? I, I don't know. I mean, that's, uh, that's a, that's a, depends on where, you know, Bora Bora, maybe. But other than that, you know, would I be willing to give up that cello to save my eternal soul? Uh, yes. Yeah. And that, that I'm saying is the most important thing that I have that I would be the saddest about if I lost. And, and would I be willing to give that up for my salvation? Of course, willingly, gladly. If it meant burning the cello so that I wouldn't have to burn eternally, yes. Not, let's not, don't pass go, do not collect $200. Take the cello, please. And yet we live our lives daily with things that we feel are more important to us than our relationship with the Lord, right? Am I wrong here? Um, it must just be me. Uh, I mean, it's probably just me. But we live our lives every day. We wake up in the morning and, and our first thought is not about, well, you know, how can I deny myself? How can I pick up my cross? How can I follow him, right? That's not our first thought most mornings. It's not my first thought most mornings. And, and I'm making a choice here. I'm making a decision about what I'm, what I'm assigning value to in my life. So when he says to me, what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Boy, that, that hits hard. That, that passage just sits right here. You know, it's like I had tacos for lunch and it's not good. You know, like that kind of feeling. Man, it hits hard. So we have to ask ourselves every day, am I making decisions today based on things that will not stay, that are not eternal? Am I making decisions in my family, in my church, in my work, in my relationships? Am I making those decisions today based on things that are eternal or am I making them on things that are temporary? Am I focusing all of my time and all of my energy into things that just don't matter in the long run? Back when mobile gaming uh, came out first, um, Sherry and I pl started playing this like Farmville Townland, you know, game. It was like, and you have to go and you plant the crops, you know, and then you like harvest the crops after a couple hours. Then you go back and you have to plant more crops and then you have to go harvest those crops. And then you, you know, about 12 hours later, you're like, I just harvested 7,000 virtual carrots. <laughs> How much time did I just give up for something so stupid? I'm not saying all mobile games are stupid, but Candy Crush is. But um, we many times just fix on things that are so temporary and so not important in life at the expense of things that are so valuable eternally. This last little verse here in 26, it says, forever whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the, and the holy angels. And I did not like that verse either. I don't like this whole passage. It just makes me angry sometimes. But then I realize, okay, God, there's something you're trying to teach me here. But I read that passage the first time. I was like, well, that just seems mean. And then I followed this back up the passage and it's like, if I'm not doing these things, if I'm not denying myself and I'm not taking up my cross, I'm not following him and I'm choosing to save my own life instead of losing it for others and I'm choosing to focus on the things that are benefiting me instead of the things that are benefiting uh, my soul, 
and, and I'm ashamed of him, then wh- why would I expect God to be proud of me? If I'm doing all those things, if I'm living these, in this, these ways, why would I expect the God of the universe who gave his son up for me to, to be proud of me as his son? I don't believe this is talking about our eternal salvation. I'm talking, I think that what I want to see, like Kevin talked about, is at the end of days when we stand before the Lord and, 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 he's, and, and we fall on our faces in front of him, that he would, he would say, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what I'm looking for. And if I'm making decisions in my life based on myself and not on him, then why would I expect that reward? Why would I expect that? And then he gets to the end of this passage in verse 27, and he says, Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And this is a passage that, uh, this, this verse here is, it's not exactly controversial, but if you're a theologian, it probably is one of those things. Like, if you're a theologian, weird things are controversial, okay? Like the northern or southern location of Ur. I mean, who, who cares? But they'll argue about it for days and days and days. It's like, okay, Fine, whatever. Is this really important? But this passage, there are many different ideas on what Jesus could be referring to here. Some people say it's a transfiguration because that comes directly after that. And Jesus is, I mean, it's, it's an amazing passage. You should definitely read that this week. Um, some people taught, say that it's Pentecost. Um, and some people say it's the establishment of the church. And um, there's a number of different ideas behind it. Um, I'm not going to tell you which one I think it is because, I mean, I don't really know. But um, I'm going to tell you what I do know from this. He says this, that truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And it's not that the, this is not just taste death, right? It's not just you're not going to die. This is something kind of more than that. He didn't just say you're not going to die until you see the kingdom. He said you're not going to taste the sting of death if you look into it deeply. You're not going to experience the deep pain of death apart from me. Uh, you're not going to experience that. So what I can take from this is this, that those of us who are believers, who know him, will never have to experience the pain of eternal separation from God. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we are not going to have to taste the death that was there before Jesus. We are not gonna have to know what it means to be eternally separated from him. And when he says this to his disciples, that has got to be such an encouragement such an encouragement, not that they may not die, but that when they die, that they are not going to experience the death that is apart from God. Because if you look at this passage, you look at the disciples, um, most of them died horrifically as martyrs. They were not like, none of them, I mean, very few of them just died in their old age, you know, tucked in their, co- in their comfy bed. Um, it, they did not live happy lives and and. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians were killed early, early in the church by Rome. Did they experience the pain of death? They experienced the physical pain of dying, but they did not experience the eternal pain of death apart from God. And I think it's important here that this is not a passage about how do you earn your salvation, right? This is not about how can I become a believer. That's not, that's not what this passage is about because Jesus uh, came and, 
we experience a relationship with him because wholly because of his work on the cross. Not because of anything that I do, not because of anything that I say, not because of anything else beyond that. This is a passage about how, because of that sacrifice, how, what now? How do I live now? Right? So the bottom line is this. You want to put it up here. The bottom line is this. We don't live for God to earn his approval. We live for God because he gave everything for us. And what you'll find in your life is as you begin to walk the way of Jesus and you follow him along, what you'll find is that he leads you into a life of sacrificing um, for him and for others. And it is not just, it's, it's not like, well, I'm gonna be all sacrificial. That's not what it's about. It's about you will find joy in sacrificing and picking up your cross daily and walking alongside Jesus as he walks to the cross and, and being that image bearer of God as you walk in your daily life. It's an incredible honor. To stand here this morning um, is, is an incredible honor. I am beyond um, humbled by the fact that anyone would say, yeah, Chris, get up there and teach us. Because, man, I have learned a lot of lessons and, and forgot a lot of them and have a lot more to learn. But what I know is this, that God has called me to sacrifice my life for other people. He has called me to stand and be an image bearer of Christ with the cross on my shoulder. So when people look at me, they don't see Chris, the bald guy. They don't see Chris, the cello player. They don't see Chris, the singer or guitar player. And they don't see Chris, the teacher. They don't see Chris, the guy who works for Verizon. They don't see any of those things. They just see Jesus. They just see the cross. They just see it lifted up high in front of them. And they say that something is different about that guy right there. And I want to know what it is. And can you, can you show me? Can you show me? That's all I want you to see. I don't want you to see me. I just want to see, I just want you to see Jesus. I would be willing to give a lot for a lot of you. And I'd like to say I'd be willing to give my life for any of you, um, but let's be realistic. That's, that's a hard thing to say. In February of 1943, um, the SS Dorchester was a, uh, a vessel that was traveling across the North Atlantic full of soldiers heading to World War II, American soldiers heading to the theater in World War II in Europe, um, full of soldiers. Um, below decks, it was so hot. The air didn't work really well. You can imagine that air conditioning on a boat in the 40s was probably not great. So they were, they were dying. It was so hot. And um, they had had sightings of German U-boats throughout the area, and which was a submarine, and the German U-boats at that time were, were far superior to what we, could, what we could deal with. And so they were routinely um, torpedoing these ships as they were carrying troops over to Europe. And on the night of February 3rd, uh, in the middle of the night, the klaxons went off um, and a German U-boat had torpedoed the Dorchester. Um, and it was going down. And at when, when the alarms went off, all of the soldiers who were below decks ran up as quickly as they could to the surface because they had no idea um, what was happening. They just knew that it was bad. Um, so they ran up to the surface. Most of them did not have their life jackets on. So they were somewhere near Greenland at the time. It was freezing cold in February. Of, and, and you can just imagine, you find yourself on the deck of the ship and there's, there's no, I mean, there's not enough lifeboats for everybody, right? Not enough lifeboats. You don't even have a life preserver. And yet on that same transport over were four chaplains 
that we're heading to Europe as well to serve in the field with the, other, uh, with the soldiers as chaplains. And they found themselves on the deck of that ship with their life preservers on, looking around at men who had no hope. And so what, what do they do? They, they, of course, if you're, if you're that, you go get in the lifeboat, right? I'm gonna make it. I don't know about you guys. Sorry, I'm gonna go get in the boat. Of course, that's not what they did. All four of them took off their life preservers and went to a soldier and put it on and spent the last time of their life getting those other soldiers into the life vessels. Come on, let's go. Let's go. You gotta get in there. You gotta get in there. Take my life jacket. Take my life preserver. And they got as many as they could into the, life, into the lifeboats and they, they let down and there was one of the survivors, Grady Clark. This is the quote that he gave about them and he's this, as I swam away from the ship, I looked back. The flares had lighted everything. The bow came up high and then slid under and the last thing I saw, the four chaplains were up there praying for the safety of the men. They had done everything they could. And the stories were that they were holding hands and praying in, um, in, their, in different languages and different prayers. They had given up everything for those soldiers. And that's the life that God is calling us to. That is the life. We're we probably not going to be in a position where we're going to have to give up our life jackets for somebody else. But the life that God is calling us to is being willing to sacrifice ourselves for the souls of other people. That is our role as the church in the world today. So I'm just going to ask you this morning, are you, are you doing that? Um, are you willing to give up your life, your safety, your security, the things that make you comfortable for others? Let's pray. God, as we come to you this morning, we are so grateful for the sacrifice that you made for us. We thank you, Father, that you, in your incredible grace and mercy sacrifice yourself so that we could know you and Lord we ask that you would help us to live the life that you're calling us to a life of grace and mercy to others help us father every day to wake up to deny myself put down my own wants my own desires and turn it over to you God help me to pick up my cross daily help me to walk in the way that you have shown me to Lord and follow you and we look forward to seeing you again, Lord. In Jesus' name.